This is labor, 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 Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about labour history and trade union issues. This is episode five. I'm Ellie Clark, and as always, I'm joined by Ed Mustel, Daniel Randall, and our brilliant producer, Liam. After we got relatively deep into specific issues of organisational strategy in our last episode, we thought we'd go in a slightly different direction for episode five. So today, we're going to be talking about trade unions on screen. I'm actually super excited about this episode because I've got a little confession to make. In my perfect world, I would be some sort of like screenwriter critic. I'd be some sort of like TV critic or art critic, or maybe one of those twats that's on BBC Four. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this I am. This is just I, a stepping stone. <laughs> this is just a stepping stone for me. I'm so excited about this. Um, so we're going to be looking at a few examples of how trade unions have been portrayed in contemporary film and television. And discussing why we don't see trade unions that much represented in more cinema and TV. Is it simply a low ebb of struggle means our movement is um, socially invisible? Or does it have something more to do with um, the politics of producing and commissioning? Um, Picking up on a theme we touched in our first episode, we'll also be talking a little bit about film and television industry as a site of class struggle in and of themselves. This month's guest is screenwriter Clive Bradley, who'll be joining us to discuss some of these issues. Clive's credits include an Icelandic crime drama, Trapped, which was broadcast on the BBC in 2016, the children's television film That Summer's Day, which dealt with the 7-7 bombings and their aftermath, and the 2007 film W Delta Z, which was Clive's first feature film and which was also an early career-launching film for the great Tom Hardy. (laughs) Love of my life, if you're listening, give me a call. I'm sure he is listening. (laughs) Um, You might get a sense from from these credits that Clive's work doesn't particularly, or indeed at all, feature trade unions themselves. But as a socialist activist of over 30 years standing, who was involved in lesbians and gays support the miners during the 1984-85 miners' strike, the story of which has recently been made um, famous by the film Pride, we thought that Clive would be in a great position to give us some political insight into our discussion, as well as some insider knowledge about the industry. Before we get into the interview with Clive, though, we wanted to set up uh, a little bit of the discussion first in Labour Days and do you a little bit of Labour Days show and tell. So we've each picked one example of unions appearing on screen that we thought were worth talking about as a kind of jumping off point for a wider discussion. We wanted to focus on a portrayal of unions that is somewhat incidental, where the writers have chosen to tell a story in which unions are socially visible, but um, but not the main focus of the story. All three of us have picked examples from American television, which might be illustrative of something in and of itself. So to kick off our discussion, I'm going to be handing over to Ed, who's going to be talking about a little-known cartoon from America called The Simpsons. Thanks, Ali. If you haven't heard of The Simpsons, uh, it's a a premise. (laughs) I I don't need to do that. Um, So there's a particular episode of The Simpsons uh, called Last Exit to Springfield, which is quite an early episode. Season um, four. Season four, indeed. The golden age, <laughs> as, as 
as many people call it. Um, and it's the one where Homer becomes president of the union at the nuclear plant. And it's almost uniformly regarded as one of the greatest ever episodes of The Simpsons. It like is. in critical lists, in like fan favourite lists, like a lot of people say it's like the best ever episode. Even I, I was re-watching it recently and realised that probably about half of my favourite Simpsons quotes are from this one episode. It's, it's mad how good it is. I mean, the reason it's so popular almost certainly has very little to do with the fact that it's got like a strike in it. It's It's like absolutely rammed with pop culture references that's pro- that's probably accounts for a lot of its popularity and the script is just so tight as well um but it's it's essentially it's like it's like a satire about unions or or a satire of unions particularly in America so it's not a particularly sympathetic you know whereas the simpsons tends to have a sort of liberal bent you know normally um you wouldn't go as far as to call the episode like anti-union or anything like that, but it's definitely like that. That's who the butt of most of the jokes are in mm. this episode, you know. And it's, so it starts out very early on. Um, Mr. Burns and Smithers uh, decide to take on the union. Burns is saying, "Where's that trade union representative?" Smithers says, "Oh, he hasn't been seen since he promised to clean up the union." <laughs> and then it cuts to a uh, to a football field with a body buried underneath. I mean, that that's a and that's a a reference to the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa and the fact that he was thought at one point to be buried under a football. Was it in New Jersey? A yeah. football stadium in New Jersey. I mean. I mean I, in kind of researching, doing research for this episode of our podcast, it is incredibly striking how many of the portrayals of unions in American television and film are to do with the association between the labour movement and organised crime. Yeah. I mean, Ellie's going to be talking about The Wire later, which is precisely about that. There's there's some stuff in The Sopranos about their involvement in construction unions, I think. So, mm-hmm. so in the sort of mainstream cultural consciousness of um, a lot of mass popular culture in America where unions appear it's kind of as an appendage or an adjunct to the mafia orga- to the mafia yeah. to, yeah. to, to organise crime um, or just corruption more generally and, yeah indeed and, and, dodgy, and, dodgy goings on more generally and there's, I think, there's another episode of The Simpsons where Homer becomes a, a truck driver because he enters a steak eating contest with a truck driver <laughs> who, who, who dies <laughs> and, uh, and takes his truck over and and um, and the trucks are all it turns out are all being driven automatically by a machine and the uh, the, the truckers one of the truckers says to him at a gas station or whatever didn't your union rep tell you about the scam we've got going on <laughs> that thing about the, fo- the focus on that I think is also political because there's a um, a strong element of how unions are, how the kind of mainstream ideology, mainstream political ideology in America sees unions. It kind of sees unions themselves as forms of like protection racket, and it, it, the, in and of themselves, they're yeah. a kind of they're sort a sort of cartel. Of co- exactly, yeah. they're a cartel. Yeah. They're you know vested vested interests, a group of people getting together to extort something out of somebody else. Um, which you know, of course, in a way, there are, but they are, but it's a form of uh, <laughs> it's a form of vested <laughs> interest that we're yeah, good, yeah, good. Yeah, also like talk about a pot calling the kettle black. Yeah, you know, yeah, of course, you know, that, of society. Yeah, that, that like c- completely speaks to the like profound hypocrisy at the at the heart of the like the American bourgeoisie's sort of conception of itself. Yeah. 
I don't think that's particularly what's going on in The Simpsons, but a lot of that TV and film portrayal in America of unions being totally like mobbed up and linked, linked to organised crime is about that, trying to kind of convey the message that they sort of they lend themselves to this because they're they're kind of a form of it already. Yeah. It's true that the union is the butt of most of the jokes in that episode of The Simpsons. But having said that, The Simpsons is a satirical TV program, and yeah. I feel like everybody kind of gets it evenly because oh, yeah, yeah. there's there's also that great quote by Burns, isn't there? Like, get me some strike breakers. The kind they had in the thirties. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's yeah. like clips of him like running over small Irish children. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, everybody then, kind of gets it equally in the Simpsons. But yeah, and, and it's also important to remember as well in the episode that the strike wins. Exactly, and they, yeah, and they, they get the dental. Yeah, part. you're definitely meant to sign. Like the yeah. the the um, scene where you know Lisa's doing her kind of Joan Baez bit on the picket line, singing mm. um, "They have the plan, but we have the power." Is it's absolutely brilliant. Like I mean, it's genuinely moving and you know yeah. quite affecting, and it's a good bit of kind of characterization of Lisa. And I think you're def- on the whole the sort of thrust of the episode. I think you're definitely meant to side with the yeah. union and side with the workers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Should we play a clip? Come gather round, children. It's high time you learned. About a hero named Homer and a devil named Burns. We'll march till we drop the girls and the fellas. We'll fight till the death or else fold like umbrellas. Now do classical gas! So, obviously, that's this one episode of The Simpsons which is very heavily focused around a union struggle out of, you know, however many Simpsons episodes there now are, you know, 300 or whatever. Um, and possibly one and a half if you count the one where he becomes a truck driver. Uh, but there are there are sort of jokes about yeah. unions sort of threaded through what's, the Simpsons. What's the, what's the zombie swallow brains, but he can't swallow? Oh, the, just uh, the, uh, that's the... That's the uh, <laughs> That's yeah. Start off with the punchline and anti-comedy. We'll work backwards. Um, that's that's in the one that's based around the musical Evita, where uh, Lisa calls a strike of elementary school students, and the different unions come out in sympathy action, including the Association of Theme Park Zombies. Yeah. Well, and, the, uh, and the newsroom cue card holders union. Those kind of quite nuanced jokes about the labour movement, labour movement strategy. We talked in our last episode, didn't we, about the the joke in Last Exit to Springfield about the name of the union. Yeah. Um, the, the International Brotherhood of, what's it, Nuclear Technicians, Jazz Dancers and Pastry Chefs, chefs being yeah. a kind of joke about industrially illogical amal- amalgamation. And what I think that's kind of indicative of, which I think is something we're probably going to be discussing later in the episode and certainly in the interview with Clive, is that there is quite a high level of at least sort of residual trade union consciousness amongst creative workers in the American film and TV industry like you know there have been a couple of really high profile writers guild strikes you get the sense that there's quite a high level of unionisation there's a sort of generally liberal political bent so you you see that that reflected in these quite nuanced these quite nuanced jokes Okay, so uh, moving on from The Simpsons, um, Ellie, you're going to talk about uh, The Wire. I certainly am. So, um, for those of you who haven't seen The Wire yet, 
Firstly, surely no one. Has I was going to say. On. Firstly, you have literally no it's excuse. Like, uh, greatest show on television ever. Actually, you have were... literally no excuse. It was a cultural phenomenon, and it's ten years people old. People still saying that. Has <laughs> there been, been nothing better? Since? There really hasn't. There really hasn't. Um, but also. And don't worry too much because it's very hard to spoil The Wire. Um, and the reason why I say that is because The Wire is an incredibly individual show in the sense that there are no heroes and villains. There's no uh, there's no big bads and there's no kind of plot moments that that change the whole um, premise of the show or that um, that you kind of you can mark out the ending from that moment so actually the way that The Wire operates is much more a series of what seem to be um, inconsequential yet connected events which further down the line end up having quite a catastrophic effect on characters in the city but there's no sort of one moment in The Wire that can be spoilt. it's not for instance like Romeo and Juliet where Romeo kills Tibble, and you kind of know from that moment there will be no good ending for this there's, just, there's nothing like just, that in the wild just just to because we shouldn't take this for granted just to say very quickly the premise of the wire is that it's a, a show about sort of social and political life in baltimore in maryland mm-hmm. basically so i'm going to um focus primarily on season two of the wire uh because season two of the wire is it <laughs> It focuses on the unions, but as we discussed in the beginning, it focuses on the unions in a more sort of um, like roundabout, tangential way. Incidental way. way, Yeah, yeah. yeah. So basically, the the actual plot of the season is that a cargo full of girls, women who have been trafficked from Eastern Europe, are found on the docks and they're all dead. Um, So this launches a kind of criminal investigation into the docks and. Specifically, the union. Um, so that's the, do- the, actual, the dock workers' union. The, yeah, specifically the dock workers' union. So that's the actual plot. But the theme of this season is one that is about um, the deindustrialization of the United States and what happens to the working class when they no longer have industries that that they have previously worked in many times for like generations. Um, So the way it focuses on the working class, though, is in a way, uh, the industrial working class is in a way that is very sort of conventional in the sense that these workers are all male. Um, They're from immigrant backgrounds and it is a mixture of black or white, but they're very, they're exactly how you would think of like dock workers to be. These are like hard drinking, sort of hard working, manual laborers who make dirty jokes all the time. And it's, it's a very lad culture. Um, now, I think to be fair to the wire, that probably is how the docks in Baltimore are. Um, don't, don't you know that from your years working, <laughs> working on the docks? <laughs> the <Baltimore> docks. <laughs> um, so to be fair to the wire, I think that probably is quite true to life. But as I say, it's it's a very conventional sort of understanding of of what the working class are. So I want to rip apart a little bit something Daniel said to me earlier. Um, so he basically said that um, um, I interpret it as uh, the wire is a very kind of like A to B story of how the unions have been infiltrated by organised criminals. And that's actually, a, that's a gross misinterpretation. <laughs> as I said nothing of the sort. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll let the jury decide. <laughs> Um, when actually I think the union representation in The Wire is one of the most 
complex I have ever seen in television. So the story basically is the secretary treasurer, uh, whose name's Frank Sobotka, has been... Is he any relation to Mark Sobotka? The no, they, they, spe- they spell and pronounce their names differently. <laughs> <laughs> so he has been turning a blind eye to smuggling coming through the docks um, and he has been taking backhanders from an organised criminal gang from Europe. We they, It never really specifies what kind of organised criminal gang they are, but he's been taking backhanders from an organised criminal gang. Um, but actually, when you realise as the story goes on that it's much more complicated than a story of naked self-interest... For all of Sabotka's faults, of which there are many, and as I said before, the, the Wire is absolutely phenomenal at having incredibly three-dimensional characters who, can, who are neither villains nor heroes, but they're actually just people who are fighting against a system that is often broken. Um, and it's not broken because there is a big sort of villain sat at the top going like um i'm gonna make everything only run through backhanders and corruption it's a series of small minor fuck-ups that's led to a kind of situation in which nobody can can really function or thrive well what the, 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 one of the questions it poses that the, the whole show isn't it is that it is the system broken or in fact is is this the system working exactly how it was designed true to work true you know? true so it's obviously is unavoidably is influenced by something like On the Waterfront, which is, yeah. and we should mention as you know, because that's regarded as being one of the greatest films of all time, and that has a sort of trade union theme. kind of kind of, you know, not not right there in the center, but it's but it's very much part of the context of the film. Uh, but it also maybe quite influenced by the film about Jimmy Hoffa as well, because the. The thing in the mm. in the Hoffer biopic is is that thing of like, yeah, he's like totally corrupt, but he's also is he like isn't he doing it like for his for his lads sort of mm. thing as well, you know? Mm. And you're sort of I don't know in the Hoffer film you're support sort of supposed to like root for him even though he's like going down this completely like like corrupt <laughs> criminal. I mean, path. yeah, it's really hard. I mean, it's simultaneously hard to have sympathy with Frank and not have sympathy with Frank because you realise that he's in just an awful situation right in the wire. I mean, the thing that I think saves him is the fact that he does not know. He doesn't know what's in those cargo ships. So, like, he has no idea, for instance, that it's cargo ships full of trafficked women. And to his credit, completely freaks out when he finds out. But then he also cho- he chose to turn a blind yeah, eye yeah, to yeah, it yeah, could yeah, have been anything yeah. coming through. Because the, the other thing is, like, he's supposed to be, like, running the port, isn't he? It's yeah. like the, the, the port... Well, it, the, the bit that I've seen or watched up to, like... There's no management in the port. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's, the, it's the union that's running. Yeah, and you, and you have to go to the union hall to get your like ticket to work. For yeah. The day. yeah. Um, although you're right, Ellie, that the wire doesn't isn't sort of um, it's 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 not sort of there's, there's there's not much like moral clarity in terms of like these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. I think it does have a sort of like it's quite kind of pro work. It's like pro working class, yeah. and and, you, so and it Simon, gives the sen- it gives the sense of like. You know, you're meant to side with the kind of working class people against the system in some sense. What's the writer called? David Simon. David Simon. David Simon. I. He's a really hard guy to pin down, but I once heard him say, like, in t- he's definitely not 
like a socialist and he's definitely not a Marxist. I think he's an extremely clever, pissed off, like... Liberal. Liberal, yeah. yeah. Um, but, I mean, liberal even sounds a little bit too washy, but I did once hear him say that the only way America will survive is through the tension between the working class and the and, ruling class and, and that the unions uh, have to fight because that's what makes us great. And I, th- I think you're... I think maybe I'm... I might be making this up because I sort of want it to be true because I love The Wire as well. But I think I remember seeing him quoted somewhere as saying somebody asked him very directly if you could summarise what is The Wire about. He said it's about class struggle. Yeah. Um, which it is in all, in all you know in all sorts of ways and 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 very directly in the season you're describing. Cool. So uh, we've we've had uh, The Simpsons. We've had <laughs> The Wire, which is I think the interesting thing about that is it's a it's an incredible. That's a quite a rare example. It stands out as quite a rare example as an of an incredibly complex, multifaceted portrayal of a trade union on screen. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I was talking about The Simpsons, it was like the here are just some the, the jokes that that exist about trade unions in on American telly. Um, Daniel's going to talk about a show that most people have probably never heard of so i'll i'll let you uh, i'll let well, you for, educate people <laughs> i certainly will from the from the sublime to the ridiculous so i'm going to be talking about what is probably a 90 second sequence in one episode of a show that ran for one season <laughs> um, but by by a writer who like is really a kind of marmite figure who like massively divides opinion and Ed's right that most people haven't heard of this show because it ended up being panned and, the, and a lot of people who have heard of it hate it <laughs> like with a, with a really profound passion um, so continuing uh, Daniel's theme of trying to narrow the audience down uh, as much as possible yeah so um, I'm going to be talking about um, uh, an episode of Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip which is by Aaron Sorkin who's, who's better known for being a writer of The West Wing and the, who wrote the screenplay for The Social Network um, so just to very quickly talk about the just the pracy the sort of premise of the show um, it's a comedy drama um, set on the set of a sort of fictionalised version of Saturday Night Live so it's a live sketch comedy show um, and, and the sort of action largely takes place sort of on, on the set of the show and it's about the relationships between the cast and, and the writers and so on so the sequence I'm going to be talking about is about a wildcat strike of the uh, prop masters and the cue card guy, the guys who hold up the cue cards um, on the set of the show. And the reason I picked it is that I think it is quite illustrative of some of the trends we talked about earlier, some of the things discussed in the interview with Clive in terms of the levels of trade union consciousness in the American entertainment industry. Um, amongst um, amongst kind of creative workers so um, it's probably short enough for us to uh, play a clip of so let's do that you all know what a wildcat strike is you don't know what a wildcat all right well you're about to live through one local 44 of the prop masters union their contract expires at midnight tonight but our guys decided to walk out early when 10 minutes ago our prop guys walked out they did I can't hear you if you all talk at once. Why? Well, Danny was talking about the contract negotiations, and he got frustrated, and he said something a little impolitic that may have been interpreted the wrong way. What did he say? 
He said, for the love of God, you're just prop guys. You're easily replaceable. Test us on that theory. Hang on, we're not crossing any picket lines or anything. Right? Absolutely not. We're all union guys here. We will not, any of us, perform the job of a prop master tonight. What about the cards? What about them? The cue cards? The cue card guys belong to the prop master's union. Really? Yes. Danny's insult was just at the prop guys. I'm sure the cue card guys didn't take offense at what he you said. You guys have a good show. You show these up your ass. Wow. <clears throat> oh. Now we got ourselves a bargain. Great. Um, so I, th- I think this is important for a um, number of reasons. It talks about um, the entertainment industry as a site of class struggle. It's about workers on set organizing for their material class interests. There's a sort of interesting um, little moment where it's discussed that the um, uh, cue card guys and the prop masters are in the same union, which sort of echoes back the, some of our discussions from our previous episode about industrial unionism. There's a really lovely moment where one of the actors says, um, the, the uh, director of the show is um, saying, uh, look, just, you know, it doesn't matter that the prop guys are out on strike because all your prop props are here ready-made. And one of the actors on the show says, hang on, we're not... We're not crossing any picket lines here, are we? And the director says, no, we're all union guys. None of us will be performing the job of a prop master. And the props are, you know, have already been made before the strike began. So there's, there's that nice sort of suggestion that um, even amongst the really well-paid stars of the show, there's a kind of trade union consciousness. Um, and I think, you know, look, Aaron Sorkin's politics are basically like shit, like, like <laughs> wet Clintonite democratic liberalism. Um, but it's sort of it's sort of noticeable that even even there, you know, that is kind of permeated to some degree. People have, people within the entertainment industry, even ones with those politics, that's permeated to some degree by some form of like trade union consciousness and understanding of um, industrial conflict. Mm. Um, because I don't, you know, I, I think it's pretty undeniable that you're meant to. That's a really it's a really sort of incidental throwaway moment in the show, but you're kind of you're sort of meant to side with Definitely. the spirit yeah, of the, and, you know. And also just understand what's going on as well. Which, yeah. And, and this is a recurring thing about like stuff on American telly is that they must, there must be enough, enough of the people watching it must understand all these little oblique references to trade unionism. Whereas in this country, it's almost like, I, I can't even think of, I think... I saw an episode of like Casualty or Holby or something where one of the nurses was wearing a union badge, and other than that, I can't really. Yeah, I mean, well, that that is that is no, of, that is noticeable, isn't it? That like in a lot of American shows that are set in big workplaces, even this one, even Studio Sixty, right? That's set in a big workplace. The workplace is the, the set of this this sketch show. A lot of American shows that are set in big workplaces, there'll be at some point in the life of those shows, there'll be a kind of you, there'll be a sort of union theme. Casualty in Holby City, set in huge workplaces, hospitals. I'm not aware of there ever being a kind of union storyline on those shows. It would be interesting, though, after the quite very well publicised and big kind of industrial struggle of the junior doctors, if something would leak sure, through yeah. from that. Because, that'd be, that'd be because great. They, I mean, this is even by um, sort of better times in class struggle that strike was pretty outstanding right Doctor, doctors don't tend to go on strike so it'd be yeah. interesting to see if that leads so, so as as we were as we were just talking about Holby City and Casualty our producer Liam was holding up a, um, an article from the Daily Mirror 
that talked about the stars of Holby City offering to take some kind of solidarity action with the junior doctors. So, um, uh, I don't know if that ever materialised, but um, uh, that was kind of good of them, I guess. But it would be interesting. You're right, Ellie. It would be interesting to see if that finds an echo, like on the show itself. Um, and uh, as our uh, our researcher, uh, comrade researcher Holly Smith uh, pointed out to us when we were planning the show. Um, there have been several strike storylines on Coronation Street. Um, uh, and of course, there was um, Ricky Tomlinson's character on Brooks. Yeah, right? absolutely. The left-wing soap of the, uh, <laughs> the, the 80s and 90s. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it, that, that's kind of notable as well, isn't it? That like where there have been um, representations of trade unions and labour struggles on British TV, it's tended to be in programmes set in the North. Yeah. Um, which sort of feeds into what I think is quite a negative idea in British popular consciousness that there's a kind of there's a sort of um, equivalent an equivalence drawn between like northern identity and working class identity that like being being northern is a kind of innately more like working class cultural category and therefore like they're more likely to be inclined towards sort of trade union struggles um, which is you know I mean there are so there are kind of historical reasons for that but. Obviously, there have been tons and tons and tons of really important, you know, hugely significant struggles in the south of England as well. So um, that stuff is that stuff is probably damaging, but it but it is noticeable that it, it you know it's Coronation Street and Brookside, the sort of soap set in the north that have had s- strike and trade union based storylines rather than um, you know I'm not aware of there having ever been one on on EastEnders. So that was our show and tell section, looking at some examples of how unions have been portrayed on screen. Um, coming up, our interview with screenwriter and socialist Clive Bradley to look a bit further into some of these issues. Cool. So, as mentioned in the introduction, we're very lucky to be joined now by screenwriter uh, and long-standing veteran socialist activist uh, Clive Bradley, um, with whom we're going to discuss some of the issues that we raised in our in our opening discussion. So, um, Clive, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, the first sort of general question that we wanted to kick off with um, which again we sort of trailed in in, in the podcast intro is um, what do you think is behind the the lack or the apparent lack of representations of unions in film and television is it just that there's a very kind of low ebb of class struggle in most of the western world and we, we should we should acknowledge that we're kind of talking pretty exclusively about sort of western mass culture here and really English speaking mass culture is, is it just that there's such a low of struggle that unions aren't you know significant enough social forces to sort of impose themselves in the cultural sphere and, and to register or is there additional explanations to do with the kind of people who are writing or commissioning or producing um, films and TV shows well I think it's a bit of all those things um, certainly it's true if you look back um, I'll just talk about television for the moment. If you look back at television, go back into the 60s and 70s, then you had a lot more drama being written, which was kind of about class struggle, either indirectly, um, I and mean, I guess even something like Cathy Come Home, which was a mm-hmm. 19th, Ken Loach f- uh, film made for television in 67 or 8, um, about homelessness. So it wasn't about class struggle in quite the sense that you mean, but obviously it was... Connected. It was about you know social questions and so forth, but also quite directly. Um, speaking again of Ken Loach, he made in the early seventies a um, a drama 
four parts, I think, drama called Days of Hope, mm. written by Jim Allen, which about was... the general strike. Was, yeah. yeah, it starts the First World War and ends in general strike, and it's about two brothers. One of whom becomes a Labour MP, the other one joins the Communist Party. And it is literally about the class struggle in that period. Um, even a bit later in the uh, 70s, for instance, there was a TV series, which I'm pretty certain was actually ITV, though you'll have to Google it to check. Sorry, we can, we can fact check um, it later. <laughs> written by Trevor Griffiths called Bill Brand, which was about uh, a, le- a left-wing Labour MP. Left-wing Labour MP, yes. Um, which, uh, you know, this was the period of, I think when that was broadcast, it was still the Labour government. It was still the, the Callaghan government. Um, and, you know, so, so the character Bill Brand is a member of the, Trib- of the Tribune group, I think. Um, so, and obviously that was, that was what um, national politics looked like. So drama reflected that. Trevor Griffiths, in fact, like Jim Allen, in fact, who wrote Days of Hope, had both, they'd both been in the Socialist Labour League. Um, Trevor Griffiths wrote, uh, which later became the Workers' Revolutionary Party, Trevor Griffiths wrote a very famous play called The Party, yeah, set about, in 1968, healing, yeah. which is one of the characters is Jerry Healy from, uh, well, not by name, but it's a character based on Healy. Um, from the Socialist Labour League. So, so I mean, that answer gives you, it covers two, two aspects of your question. It is partly the state of um, the world and the, the class struggle outside and also, therefore, the writers um, uh, and, indeed, other, other people involved, you know, the directors and so forth as well. Um, uh, so that's one thing. Um, so certainly what's changed is the world... Um, I mean, actually, even going into the 1990s, the, the uh, television dramas, the kind of, you know, high quality television drama, at least re- connection to the Labour movement re- remained visible. So um, a TV series like Our Friends in the North, mm, yeah. um, which must have been broadcast in about 96, so uh, mid-90s anyway. Um, or GBH. Or, well, indeed, GBH a bit earlier. Yeah. Uh, again, um, I'll, I'll start. With, I'll start with that actually, which is um, so that must have been very late eighties or very early nineties. GBH, and that's kind of about what was happening in the Labour Party mm. in Liverpool when um, yeah, Robert Lindsay plays a kind of Derek Hatton sort right. of figure, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, um, but very hostile. Yeah, um, as opposed to Bill Brand, which is very sympathetic to, to the to the left wing Labour MP. Um, the um, the Robert Lindsay character in GBH is a figure, figure of ridicule. It's not a sympathetic portrayal yeah. at all. Um, our, our friends in the North, on the other hand, um, um, which is a you know I think ten part drama. It's about a group of friends from the northeast. Um, made the names of several actors, including um, James Bond. Including James Bond. Um, Forgot he was in that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and Doctor Who's in it as well, isn't he? Yeah. Christopher Eccleston. Yeah. Yeah. Old cauliflower ears. <laughs> and Mark Strong. Uh, Mark Strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Gina McKee. Those are the four friends. Um, and it is. It's about um, really. It's about local politics and in particular Labour politics in the northeast. Housing politics was Housing, yes, as well. Very, very. That's right. Very kind of germane to a lot of debates that are going on now about yeah. Indeed, yes. um, in, in in the very borough in which we're recording this podcast. In fact, you know the the Labour Council's relationship to sort of property development and so on yeah. and so on. Yes, yeah. but not very. Uh, it, it's there's a lot of sort of Labour Party stuff in our friends in the north, but there's the trade union movement doesn't really feature. Yes, that's true, um, and I think. Um, it's hard to think of something that... It's quite easy to think of things that are about 
the Labour Party and much harder to think of things about trade unions. Yeah. I mean, and so then something like The Wire, which is, as you've mentioned, I think mean, the second series of The Wire, which is about unions in America, that seems even more kind of anomalous because it's America. Well, that's, that's an interesting point. I mean, something we noted when, so all three of us kind of independently of each other picked for our sort of show and tell section that we had um, before th- this interview, um, we all pick things from American television. Um, now, you've talked there pre- pretty exclusively about Britain, but it did seem, it, 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 it did seem quite sort of, um, I'm trying to find a, a, another word than striking, which I keep using and <laughs> sound like I'm making a bad pun, but um, it did seem quite striking to me that in a, in a way, um, representations and portrayals of unions seem to be more common in American film and television than they have in Britain. Which it's as if there's more people who would get the references or get the jokes. Yeah, I mean, I mean maybe maybe it's just maybe it's just a question of scale because you know America is the sort of epicenter of like mass culture in the Western world and it's very big and there are more people there. So maybe and there's, so there's more stuff being made. Now we have noted and a lot, and a lot of the sort of re, the academic research about um, unions in in films and TV in America also notes that well there might be lots of portrayals but they're the overwhelmingly negative and we've talked about how a lot of them are to do with organised crime and corruption and, and things like that but they're not exclusively negative um, and one thing I mentioned earlier Clive that I'm sort of interested to get your take on is that I, I wondered whether it was to do with the fact that there is quite a sort of perhaps in a slightly like residual form but there is quite but there is quite a strong degree of like trade union consciousness amongst creative workers in the American film and television industries you know particularly writers who've had a couple of quite high profile strikes in the yes I mean, indeed, indeed. I mean, the, the Writers Guild of America is a closed shop and they're, they're very um, they're very strong and they're very they, they mean business when they have strikes um, you have to do picket duty <laughs> that's uh, absolutely right yeah, yeah. Um, good yeah and, uh, heavies if you don't <laughs> hired goons <laughs> um yeah, I mean, you know, woe betide you if you uh, if you break a strike in in the US. And there is a writers a writers guild here, which isn't as strong. Um, but um, yes, I mean, in, in fact, there is a history of union organising in the, in the film industry in America. But why did that develop in America and not here? Is it something to do with the way that the industry is structured and the way that writers get work and get paid and stuff like that? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Certainly it is true that as it's developed, writers do get paid very differently. Um, that is, you're much more an employee if a very well-paid one in um, in the US. Yeah. And so, for instance, if, you, if you're working on a television show in the US, then it would be normal for you to just work on one because they pay you for your time to be yeah. working on that. Um, that doesn't happen here at all. So everybody always has to be doing lots of things if you can. Otherwise... Um, you know, you're screwed. Which means that the, I mean, this is a slightly different discussion, but the kind of writer's room that people have mm. heard of, which happens in, in America, there are experiments to do that here, but it's very hard because they don't have that payment structure in place. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's very hard to get a group of writers to sit around together for six months when they're not being paid for it. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So how, how do they get paid? Do they get paid after the work is done? Because no, like, you, I would imagine as a staff writer, you would get paid in much the same way most other workers get yeah, paid. Yeah, you're, like, you're salaried. Right? Like, yeah. you're, you're salaried, you sit there. You mean here or there? Over there. Over there, yeah. You're, 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 you're paid by the studio, whatever it is, on a, on a salary. Obviously, where, where you are in the hierarchy, 
you'll get paid differently and obviously different amounts. Um, but and, and if you're right at the top of the hierarchy in television, then you'd, or you're also a producer. Um, but yes, there are staff writers who come in, that's what you come in at the bottom, and, and you might be paid to write a, a draft or something, and then somebody else will take on and rewrite it. But that kind of structure doesn't exist here at all. So here are people basically just bargaining for themselves and well, so negotiating union, their own... There's a union and, and, and most people have agents. Mm. Um, uh, but you're, bas- you're basically self-employed. I mean, this kind of slightly preempts, I think, one of the other things you want to ask me, but um, your, um, your relationship to the producer or broadcaster, whoever it is that's paying your fees, um, is of a, 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 like a freelance something called freelance person mm. that's that's how it works mm. um so just i think we'll probably kind of return to um this stuff in terms of you know film and tv as sites of class struggle and, and kind of creative workers as um mm. as sort of agents of, of class struggle in a minute but just going back to the sort of opening point mm. about you know representations of of unions in um film and tv yes and so, so to come back to your, your question so uh, there's, there's things in the world and one of the things which in the world therefore what that affects is what um, broadcasters ultimately think is commercial mm-hmm. so you know something like I mean if someone proposed well it'd be interesting to see if things change yeah but certainly until very recently um, if somebody had proposed uh, a TV series about a left-wing MP. I mean, they think you're completely mad. Surely someone's <laughs> working on one right now. <laughs> there seems yeah. to be a trend at the moment, though, of like going back historically and looking at things that we just like that we would see as quite radical or about classical. So that like, you had things like the Mill, for instance, mm-hmm. and of course you've had things like Pride and Maiden and Dagenham, which I think films are slightly different. Even in like Peaky Blinders, yeah, yeah, there's yeah, lots yeah. of stories about like yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a, well, like, yeah, Bolshevik, Bolshevik character, and yeah. there's a whole, <laughs> whole subplot in there. Who is also a union convener, isn't he? In, yeah. the, in the car fight. Yeah, exactly. So the there, does, kid there does seem to be like a big trend towards looking back historically at political struggle and the labour movement, but that doesn't seem to be translating into anything contemporary hmm. um, in any in any sort of real way. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Is is it to do with the idea that because you said that you don't think politics or like trade unions are seen as like trendy or commercially viable, but then why is historical trade union movements seen as being like commercially? Viable? Well, I, I, I think what that is is what um, is often referred to in the industry, rather obviously as a, a Trojan horse. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's simply that historical is does well. Mm-hmm. Um, all sorts of different historical things do well, and also more recently. Um, there's been quite a taste for historical things because technology means you can do historical things so much better. I mean, you can do fantastic. I mean, obviously, it's not exactly historical, you know what I mean? Game of Thrones at the most extreme. Um, you can do this incredible stuff, which, I mean, 20 years ago, you couldn't possibly do. So so it's, it's a, a viable thing to do Birmingham in the 19th century in a way that it wouldn't have been before. And then I think it's the, 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 the creative people, the writer, etc., smuggling stuff into it. So, I mean, I kind of want to pick up on that because that's really interesting. Um, you talk about the Trojan horse and smuggling, and it kind of seems like that... On the s- I, don't, I don't want to sound like it. I'm thinking that it's uh, like a, something purpose, purposely done, but then it does also seem like, for, that, for instance, that those things won't be commissioned, but then it does seem like, for instance, writers are trying to find their way around things not being commissioned. Is that, like, is it... 
is there more of a political bent on why these things are not commissioned or do you like do you really just think it's just purely about commercial viability well i mean I, I, it, it, it's hard to know because i mean also, i mean even in britain each each broadcaster there's there's one person who makes final decisions mm. um, and the only i mean the only people that make tv film is obviously slightly different even then with film there's not that many sources of finance actually um so in, in television, there was one person at BBC or, or ITV or Channel 4 or Sky who um, who have the final say, really. And so there'll be a particular character to each of those things. And they've got slightly different agendas. The BBC obviously has a slightly different agenda to ITV, though still um, they see themselves as a competition with them. Um, uh, but ultimately, it's what they think will draw audiences. Um, yeah. And obviously they can be wrong, hmm. um, but yeah, I mean that, that is that is the bottom line for them. Um, so to you, you, you mentioned um, Ken Loach quite a lot, and um, we've talked about uh, you know our friends in the north and boys from the black stuff, and there is definitely a tradition in um, British film and television of kind of social realist writing that deals broadly with class themes hmm. um, and. Uh, sometimes directly with issues of class struggle, um, which you could w- w- one could argue that that's that's found a sort of an almost like sanitized kind of bubblegum fairy tale contemporary expression in films like um, Billy Elliot, Pride, and Made in Dagenham. The it's, sort of feel good genre of British. Yeah, and you know, I've 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 heard some plucky underdogs. Yeah, really, and I've yeah. I've heard those films talked about. You know, so Billy Elliot, Pride, Made in Dagenham, t- talked about in the same in the same categories like the Full Monty, um, and and you know, I've even heard a couple of people sort of compare them to um, a film like Newsies. I don't know if you guys have seen that, which is um, one of Christian Bale's earliest films, in which he played. It's about a, a strike of like newspaper boys in New York in like the early 20th century and it's, it's made by Disney as a musical and it's incredibly saccharine um, and it's it's uh, no, I think it's, it's a kind of quite sour and conservative criticism that people say you know we used to have this you know Ken Loach Jim Allen writing kind of serious social realist stuff about strikes and now we've got this kind of bubblegum Disney-fied sort of feel-good stuff and it's really you know it's really sort of defanging the um, the politics of the struggling question. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, I, I think that's really unfair. And I, I think, think the politics of Made in Dagenham is actually really good. Yeah, and I think the politics... Even, of... They even takes a pop at uh, Communist Party Union bureaucrats. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. I, I think Made in Dagenham's great, and I think Pride is great as well. And I, and, I, and I I mean, I think Billy Elliot and The Full Monty are great films as well, but it's not, it isn't quite right, although there's definitely some sort of stylistic and thematic overlap. It's not quite right to talk about them in the same category and... Um, I don't think it's fair to say that um, those films uh, sort of sanitise or um, neutralise the, the kind of power of the struggle they're reflecting. So what, what do you think about that, Clive? Well, um, I mean, partly what I think, I'll answer it fairly sort of personally, which is that as a writer, you write what it is that you, I don't know, that you feel you want to write or that and not everybody wants to write kind of Jim Allen sure um, that kind of social realist you know land and freedom that that kind of thing um, polemical you know that the, 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 there's a notion of what politics a political art or you know film or television that 
to be political, it has to be polemical. And obviously Loach is the, is the master of that kind of thing. Um, but that's not what everybody wants to do. And I, and I think there, there is absolutely a value. Um, uh, I, mean, I mean, arguably, a greater value in, in something which more people want to see. Um, which is also entertaining. I mean, I'm not, not to say that those things aren't necessarily aren't entertaining, but you know what I mean? But, I mean, well, to take um, an example, um, I think that there's lots of quite extraordinary sort of, um, in the broadest sense, political stuff in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, but it's obviously not polemical in a kind of Ken Loach sense. Um, but what it says that's, about... That's not social realism. <laughs> <laughs> You should not even have started on this. This is my specialist topic. If we were mastermind, that would be my specialist topic. But, you know, but, but what it says about engagement with the world and taking responsibility for the demons that are hiding in the, you know, but but um, there's you know, it, it's 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 political in its way, and you know something like pride. Absolutely, it's I mean it's not a it's not a loach version of the minor strike clearly, um, but it's um, it's a, it's a, a way of approaching those things through genre which um, certainly in and of itself seems to me perfectly valid and, um, uh, you know, good. And could, could you, I mean, could you say, could we talk a little bit more about Pride? I mean, because, firstly, because you you were involved in yes. LGSM, so have a sort of um, participant's eye view of, of, of that stuff. But also because, I mean, you know, without wanting to veer off into a sort of, you know, discussion of like art theory and uh, sort of anti-Stalinist. Yeah, we're, we're, exactly we're trying to build an audience. That's what I envisioned this whole episode to be. Well, without <laughs> let me down. I'm so, well, okay, without wanting to veer off into into a, a sort of you know the anti-Stalinist critique of, of social realism. I like Ken Loach, but I think Pride is all the better for not being written and produced in that kind of sort of do quite slightly doer social realist like po- polemical tone. And the bits of it that are a bit, that are maybe a little bit sort of choreographed and, you know, not like the bit when the bit in the when they're all in the miners' welfare and they kind of break into song and they start singing "Bread and Roses," like that that is you know that is incredible. It's incredibly affecting. It, it is obviously a little bit of sort of emotional manipulation. It's tugging the heartstrings, but it is incredibly affecting. Um, it brought that song before a whole new audience of people, yeah. and you know, hopefully, at least a handful of them went away and googled it and learned about the, you know, the Lawrence textile strike or um, Clara Lemlich and Rose Schneiderman in New York who who coined that slogan. Um, so you know, I think I think I think Pride was really valuable. So what what did you think of Pride, Clive, as a participant in the movement that it tells the story of? I thought it was great. I mean, I, I was surprised um, when I first. I first saw it that the the, uh, the filmmakers organised a kind of special screening for the veterans, as they, <laughs> as they called us, um, uh, and I was surprised how political it was. I was expecting it to be much more bubblegum and kind of uh, you know divide. Yes, exactly. And and in, and in fact, um, you know, as you say, there's that there's songs that have solidarity forever, and it it kind of takes for granted that the miners' strike is right. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. It. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it it, it it pretty powerfully spoke to a generation that had no experience of that. I mean, the thing about us then when we were involved in it was that it was you know 
it, we, we knew that the miners were important. The, um, forgive me if you've heard me say this before, the, the very first kind of big political thing I ever went on was a mass picket at Grumwick, which was a, a strike for trade union recognition in Cricklewood. In which um, we uh, covered extensively in, in our third episode. Ah, yeah. right, well, there you go. Um, and so it was a mass picket. And I remember very clearly, there was thousands of people, and uh, which later was attacked by the SPG, which they did all, every time there was a, a special program, which is the elite unit of the police, every time there was uh, a mass picket. But I remember the point at which the cry went up, and so gradually the whole crowd picked it up, the Workers United will never be defeated, and it's because the miners had turned up, because they were the, you know, the big battalions are here now. So this is 77, so, you know, 84, the miners' strike is not very long afterwards, although at the time it seemed to be quite a long time, but looking back, it's a very short time. Um... And so Pride, I think, spoke to a generation that has no, that, 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 uh, has no memory or experience of that, I think, very, very powerfully in a way that a more, as you say, doer or social realist or documentarian type um, drama wouldn't have been able to do. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that's fantastic. Um, but, I mean, it's, I suppose it's also important to, that, like... Not all class struggle is miserable and shit. <laughs> you know, people do have a so I'm told have, have a good time as, as as part of their political life. And I, a lot of people who live through those struggles, even though like the miners' strike went down to defeat, some people still talk of it as like one of the best times in their life in terms of like the people they met and the, mm. the discussions they had and the sort of political awakening that they so in a way like it is realistic to show it in that sort of sure. optimi- more optimistic or more fun way because it wasn't it, oh, I'm, I'm sure it was in a lot of ways very miserable to live through but in a lot of ways very, also very exciting and, and very empowering yeah and yeah um, one question I wanted to ask maybe that, and then we can go on and talk about the the industry more as a as an industry but just from a writer's point of view is there something in the is it is it necessarily hard on screen whether it's small screen or big screen to show collective action in a medium where you kind of have to have like a protagonist or at least a small group of protagonists you've kind of got to have a sort of individual hero i mean i that I mean, obviously, to some degree, that's convention rather than just. I think it's. I don't think it's absolutely. Um, yeah, Ed, you fucking conservative. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> but I mean, it's certainly it's true that, that it's a it's a very. I mean, you can see why it's convention. I mean, that there are very few um, uh, films that you can think of. I mean, television is slightly different because television is a bit more kind of like ensemble by its yeah. nature than films. But um, you know, I mean, the, the, the classic example of all is is Eisenstein's strike, which yes. is meant to be about the, the workers as a whole. But even Meituan, which you've mentioned, the, the idea of Meituan is it's about the mining community. Um, but even then you've got, um, you've got your following particular characters. You come there with the, with the guy from the Wobblies, who's, who's um, uh, I think it's one, one of the best political moments ever in film is when he arrives and the miners are already on strike and they quiz him yeah. to, for him to prove who he is. Where's Joe Hillberry? That's yeah. right, that kind of thing. And it's, it's so, um, and to me it's great because you get the sense of this this character with a real experience of struggle. He's not this sort of Lynchian ingenue who doesn't know anything, doesn't know where bloody Spain is. <laughs> um, doesn't, I mean, well, in, in Carlos, I literally knows nothing about Nicaragua until his sister, who fortuitously has learned, just learned about it at school tale. <laughs> um, but um, that, that is, it's not that character at all. It's, it's, um, it's uh, yeah, uh, but, but, but that kind of thing of, of trying to have, to show a collective body in struggle is, is, rare and it's 
Although, as I say, it is a convention that you have a, a protagonist. Um, it's um, it's a very powerful convention because it gives it does give an audience somebody to um, to follow. So yes, I, I think um, I think that's true. I think I think the other thing, which is a kind of related point, I suppose, is that um, it is very difficult to um, to express ideas, political ideas in drama, because audiences are very um, sensitive to being told what to think. Mm. They don't want to be hit around the head. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so quite, quite often it's quite it's quite striking. For instance, I, I recently watched Land and Freedom actually, which in fact, seeing it recently, I, I, I liked immensely more than when I saw it years ago. Um, I felt <laughs> probably it was I don't know. Uh, I have that experience quite often with films. I'm bitterly hostile. But <laughs> 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 actually, it's rather good. Um, and but but the um, the arguments put in the mouths of the Communist Party yeah. people are much more sophisticated. And I, I think partly it's because actually, in a way, as a writer, it's easier to give good arguments to people you don't agree with. Yeah. There's, there's something about, about putting the arguments you agree with in people's mouths it all immediately feels kind of shit. Yeah, because it, it, like, it feels like you're being too didactic. Exactly. You know? um, I, it's just me speaking yeah, through exactly, this character. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, so that wasn't quite what you asked, but I think it's a related point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but I think... Okay, so um, partially I'm going to say what I'm about to say because I, it's my mission to mention... The 1934 Minneapolis seems to strike at least <laughs> once per episode. Um, but okay, so so one of the reasons why I, one of the reasons why Mate One so good, like the politics of Mate One are fantastic, and it's br- it's a brilliant film, um, uh, and it's and it's gripping, and there's some great shootout and action scene. And I've always thought that you could make it, you could make a fucking great action film out of Teams the Rebellion. Yeah. Um, Bec- and, and it's almost a, it's a kind of pretty good Trojan horse well, what actually. are we doing sitting here when we could be getting well this is, maybe that's our ticket to the big time Clive do you fancy writing like, because, well, it, I want, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again Matt Damon Farrell Dog <laughs> it's, it's a pretty Matt good Trojan Damon. horse as well because it, it had, it's got a conventional protagonist who is actually at the start a bit of a low chin ingenue and he meets the kind of grizzled veterans of the Dunn brothers and Carl Scogland and, and whatever. And, and it's really thrilling and there's shootouts with the cops and there's a sort of conventional narrative structure. Um, so, I mean, that, that's, that's not really a question. It's just to sort of say that that should be done. Somebody, <laughs> somebody should make an action film out of uh, Teams the Rebellion. The people almost don't feel like real people in Teams the Rebellion. They feel like characters. Uh, I think that's partly because we can only relate to it through like hit, like the book and kind of... Uh, and I think it's part, it's part of the way that like Dobbs writes yeah. the Dunn Brothers as he, he does kind of characterise so them. Like, like, if if people are wondering is... who any of these people are, <laughs> um, read Teams the Rebellion. Teams the Rebellion. <laughs> that we will inevitably bow to Daniel's relentless pressure <laughs> and almost certainly have an entire episode just on the Minneapolis I am so up for that. Yeah, let's okay, let's let's maybe kind of re- return to some of the um, issues you you suggested earlier, Clive, that we talked about um, in terms of film and TV production as sites of class struggle. And this is something we've touched on a little bit on this podcast before in our first episode, which um, talked about the picture house cinema workers strike and the nineteen oh seven musical strike. So we've already discussed the kind of entertainment industry as a site of class struggle, and I guess we're looking at that again today from um, a slightly different angle. So um, I guess a first question is just a sort of statistical one, really. Like, if, if, if you know what the... And I guess it's hard to quantify, but what are the kind of levels of unionisation amongst um, 
people in your profession in this country, like how big is the Writers Guild? I think the Writers Guild is affiliated to the TUC, isn't it? Mm, so it's yeah. a kind of bona fide yeah. trade union. Yeah. So what's, do, do writers consider themselves workers on the whole, would you say? I would say probably not. Um, as I say, partly that's just, um, you know, an expression of, the, of how it is. <laughs> and the, 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 the Writers Guild, I should say, also it only represents, it doesn't, like novelists and people aren't, aren't represented by it. It, it is um, drama, writer, mm-hmm. film and television and stage. Um, I, I don't know exactly what, I mean, as you say, it's quite hard to quantify really because lots of people um, are writers who, you know, yeah, well, Ed, well, Ed here is a writer who's had who's had plays staged right. in theatres and is right. not is not a member of the Writers Guild. So, you know. Oh dear, I've, yeah. been, I've been outed. <laughs> I've been outed as a scab on my own, <laughs> on my own trade union podcast. <laughs> but, um, but I'm not a professional writer, so uh, and, and 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 that makes it hard to join, right? Yeah, yeah. You can join as an associate member or something. Something like that, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think my per- I, 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 my guess is. I don't know if this is true, and it may be just a completely false um, impression. My guess is that the more successful writers are lower represented in the Writers Guild because it doesn't particularly help you. <laughs> um, if you've got an agent, then your agent does all that. Yeah. Um, uh, for me, part of the reason of being a member of the Writers Guild is, is, is because it can help writers who don't have agents. So, so, so the, the, the weaker, less represented... Um, less powerful writers have more strength from being in the Writers Guild and the, the more you know, writers that do have agents who don't really need that, the better for them so if, you, if you say to me, which as I say is different to America where everybody's a member But we don't have those, like you were mentioning earlier, we don't have the sort of proliferation of kind of late night comedy shows where there's actually a kind of yeah. workplace of a That's group right. of yeah. writers who are on yeah. staff so yeah. I guess the whole structure of the industry is pretty different. Yes, I mean, mean, there was recently almost another Writers Guild strike in America. There was quite a big one in, what was it, 2007? I think, yeah. Um, Which which was very prescient, actually. It was about um, uh, internet rights and things and streaming Mm. and all that kind of thing, which at the time was not... um, Because it's still... I mean, you don't... On one level, for writers... They're fantastic, all the you know Netflix and Amazon, all that kind of thing, because they they do, um, you know, or Hulu now, um, the Handmaid's Tale. You know, um, it's it's marvelous stuff, which is very exciting if you're a writer. But I mean, I don't know about Hulu, but certain Netflix and Amazon, they don't pay residuals, right. um, and that was what the writers, which is which is royalties. They don't they don't pay royalties, um, and that was what the writer strike in two thousand and seven or whenever it was 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 about. Was that therefore you the, the that you need to get more money. I mean, what was interesting about that as well is that some of the sort of people at the top, there was, a, I remember this debate with like people at the top who were very successful, some of whom was, a lot of whom were saying they supported it mm. and, they, and they sort of suspended their shows for the duration. That's right. And so even they had a kind of sort of residual loyalty to the art. Presumably they'd come up through that. Well, as I say, all the, the structure also is that if, if you're if you're the showrunner of um, of you know n- name your show if you're if you're David Simon so you you are simultaneously the producer and the writer mm. yeah um, it's a, here usually there's a division of labour mm. it's very 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 unusual for the writer to, I mean the writer might be called the producer but they're not yeah um, 
whereas they are. I mean, that, that, i.e., that they're in charge of hiring the actors, they're in charge of the finances, they have to be able to do all the budgeting, all that kind of stuff. They, they, they do all that as well as write it. Mm. And the, the team of writers is a team of writers that sits around in a room and works things out together. Um, that doesn't happen here very often. And, and what about... Um what about film and TV sets as workplaces and, and potential sites of class struggle? So, so my, my example in the sort of show and tell we did was, a, was about, is about a, um, a wildcat strike of um, sort of technical workers on, on, on a TV set um, and the effect that that has on, on, on the set of a live TV show and the effect that that has on the show. Presumably you've spent some time on the sets of um, your, you know, stuff, stuff that you've had, made, you've had made. So what's your... What's your sense of those spaces as, as kind of workplaces and, and sites of class struggle? How, how likely is it that the people operating the cameras and doing the catering and whatever, you know, are they likely to be in a union? Well, I, th- I think it's different between television and independent film. Right. Television, I think, probably quite a high rate of unionisation and, and because they're, you know, they're BBC and Channel 4 are kind of public. Mm, sure, they have they're, to, all in, uh, they're all in prospect. They have to do things properly. Um, independent film, I would say, is a very bad area for um, trade union organisation and indeed people being paid mm. yeah. at all. I mean, I've, the, I've worked on independent film sites before. It's absolutely horrendous. The hours you work for yeah. the respect and money you get is just... And the, just the stuff you have to deal with. Like, there's no concept of like health and safety regulation yeah. or even being paid a wage. It's, just, it's absolutely horrendous. Mm. And, I, and, I, and I think it's a... I mean, it's a, a thing across the industry... I mean, this isn't exactly what you asked me, but I'll say it anyway. Um, which is the, um, I mean, the obvious example for years has been runners. That, yeah. is, that is people who, who do it in order to get experience. They don't get paid anything. Um, but now, I mean, increasingly in all sorts of organisations, there are interns who be people with, you know, MAs who, um, who to, you know, work for nothing mm-hmm. in order to get their foot in the door, literally nothing, in order to get their foot in the door um, as an agent or whatever. And I think, I think that, um, I think that's very widespread. And I, I think, you know, it is, um, and in, you can't, I mean, what a producer will say to you is you can't make a film if you're paying everybody what they're supposed to be paid at trade union rate. It's just not possible because you're not getting the funding to do it. So, in, so low-budget films are all made without, um, without that. Um, I mean, yeah, uh, the, the weird things happening to film, which is that the kind of middle range of films are ceasing to exist. Now until so you're getting so it's indie blockbusters and then yeah low budget. exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah I mean in fact I, I worked with someone at one point who was who was doing research on that about 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 how to organise people in in those spheres where because it it is also it is I mean as you say uh, as you say it's, it's 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 the culture that well of course you do this for no money. It's like yeah. the idea that you've given you experience. Yeah, just be grateful for it. People, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and that that I think is is very very widespread. Yeah. Well, well, that that sort of so just as we're recording this podcast, there's the big um, uh, kind of row about um, the gender pay gap at the BBC, and a point that a couple of sort of journalists and commentators have have made is that um, there's also a huge sort of class disparity in terms of you know there's almost no one in like prominent positions in mainstream media almost no one that's that's an overstatement but um there's a real disparity in terms of prominent people in in sort of tv and and media organizations uh are mainly from 
middle and upper middle class backgrounds and there's very few people from working class backgrounds and to be able to take mainly white um, mm. yeah mainly white as well there's a huge there's a huge racial disparity too mm. um, and to because to be able to take the kind of jobs you're describing Clive to, to be a, to be essentially a sort of hyper exploited unpaid worker you basically need to be independently wealthy already mm-hmm. to come from a sort of well yeah. well off enough background um, so mm. how, how significant do you think that is um, if at all um, and how do you think uh, it would be possible to, 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 to get more sort of working class voices into um, film and TV spaces I think it is significant and I, I mean you know um, all the broadcasters are trying and there are various schemes that are in you know to try and encourage diversity and so forth I mean it's increasingly becoming a thing that everybody I mean by everybody I mean you know the BBC and Channel 4 and everybody realise they have to do that this is an untenable situation and they have to so for instance what was um, the coming up scheme that Channel 4 did which was to uh, they've changed the format of it quite a bit but the basic idea of it was to find new writers and directors to make it used to be half hour things the one uh, last year was actually they only made one feature length um, TV show um, which actually has won major awards and things. It's done for it. But but the, the, which the, was that? It's called Ellen. Right. Um, and uh, but that that whole thing has now been replaced. I don't know what it's called now. But its its aim is diversity. So that um, so that you know so the, the the notion that something has to change I think is filtering through. All right. So may, maybe just um, as a sort of final question, Clive we could conclude by talking about what what can be done to change this. I mean, you know, all, all of the people in this room are socialist activists and, you know, our, our aspiration is for there to be a much higher level of class struggle globally and that's what we're working towards and we would sort of hope and expect that that would find both a direct and indirect sort of echo and expression in the cultural sphere. But that obviously can't be sort of conjured into life at will. So... <laughs> While, that's, while we're all sort of working towards that, um, and in the meantime, do you think there are any practical steps that could be taken to um, improve, uh, increase and improve the representation of trade unions and worker struggle um, on screen? I think it's very hard to, um, to think of exactly a way to do that. I mean, the, I, what I do think is true is that television drama has always seen... Obviously, there's a huge amount of television drama made, much of which is not intended to be anything other than, you know, disposable. Um, but some television drama has, has always seen its its role as to, you know, interrogate what's happening in the, the world around it. And as the world around it is changing, um, I think those things will uh, will arise. I, you know, I, I think that um, I think there will be some knock-on effects to the fact that, you know, a few weeks ago. Um, to be um, someone who even you know critically supported the leadership of the current leadership of the Labour Party, um, you were regarded by in the mainstream media or you know in the in the the, the, the echo chamber of of uh, the media and of television too as being basically a lunatic, <laughs> and um, suddenly there was actually oh um, we didn't un- we didn't know that, um, and I, I think that will have an effect. I I, I think that. Um, the, you know we will see drama in all sorts of different ways um, 
that starts to reflect that and, and, and talk about it. Um, obviously, that's not something that just militants on the ground can do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, except contribute to the world changing. Um, I mean, in the past, you know, there have been um, movements in theatre and even, even in its way in television in the 60s um, to, to, you know, address the world. But, but the, the, the structure of television changed so much that it's very much harder to do that now. You know, in, 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 the, in the days in which, for instance, Jim Allen, who, was, who worked with Ken Loach, wrote Land of Freedom and so on, came up through the theatre and television, um, the, the, the BBC had lots of independent producers who had budgets who could just decide to make things. That's not me. You can't do that anymore. There's one person who will decide. Um, so, uh, so it's very hard from the outside to just change those mm. things. Um, but I do, I do think that the, the, the changes in the world will have, um, will have an effect. Um, so in summary then, um, big upsurge in class struggle. Um, in the meantime, if somebody, you know, if a, friend of ours was inclined to write a action movie <laughs> film script for Teams for Rebellion um, what you know what should they do with it who should they send it to uh, probably Ken Loach <laughs> oh, no come on <laughs> there's got there's got to be a better option Michael Bay loads of explosions <laughs> what, about the, what about the guys that do all the Marvel films <laughs> yeah come on um, oh my god Josh Whedon we could do we could give it to Josh, Josh Whedon perfect there we go he's just, on, he's just on the Avengers you know like he likes a lot of big explosions and fights we as, well as, like, as well I, I mean I don't know how left wing he is but he's at least sympathetic we'll send perfect. it to Whedon keep that out coming <laughs> summer 2019 <laughs> yeah. um, alright so um I guess we should probably wrap it up. Clive, thanks so much for um, joining us. That was really, really valuable. So uh, this episode of Labour Days, we've been looking at how trade unions and trade unionism have been portrayed on the big screen and the small screen. Um, We had a little look at some uh, American TV shows, uh, The Simpsons, The Wire, Studio 60. Uh, We had a discussion with uh, screenwriter and socialist activist Clive Bradley. Um, if we've missed anything, because despite our best efforts, we haven't managed to watch all television that has ever been made or existed. <laughs> I really have tried hard as well. Yeah, tell me about it. Um, if you know any examples, um, get at us uh, on uh, Facebook and Twitter and let us know whether it's an entire film about a strike or whether it's just a little one-line throwaway comment in your favourite TV show. It'd be really interesting to hear some more examples. Um, and just to conclude um, this month's episode a few um, shout outs and acknowledgements so um, big thanks should go to uh, Holly Smith who's the kind of fifth member of the Labour Days crew who helps us out with preparatory research Um, she uh, put together some really great um, uh, kind of essays um, looking at this from a sort of academic point of view that helped inform the discussion we'll put links to those in the episode description Um, And through those, we came across a documentary um, called Class Dismissed, um, which is a exploration of how uh, the working class has been portrayed on the American screen, um, uh, which is uh, another kind of valuable insight into into this whole discussion. A couple of uh, kind of class struggle news shout outs. Uh, Wanted to give our solidarity to the um, cleaners at Bart's Hospital in London, who've been um, waging a really um, inspiring struggle around um, pay and some other issues. Um, Again, we'll put up links uh, in the episode description 
so you can find out how to support that strike. Um, and we also wanted to direct you to a new website, picturehouse4.org, which has been set up to collate materials and information um, relating to the campaign to win reinstatement for the four sacked trade union reps at the Ritzy Cinema, which is the kind of um, epicentre of the uh, Picture House Cinema workers' fight for uh, living wage and, and, and various other things. Um, also wanted to give a shout out to Dead Ink Books, who are an independent publisher who uh, got in touch with us on Twitter. Um, they've got an upcoming project called Know Your Place, which is a symposium of essays about working class experience um, in this country. Um, we're hoping to maybe talk to them in a future episode and we thought it would be uh, kind of opposite to mention it in this one because um, there's a sort of link there in terms of how working class experience is portrayed in, in, in culture and, and that's you know in, in large part what we've been talking about today. I think that about wraps it up. Um, thanks again to Clive for joining us. Um, uh, thanks to uh, all of you for listening and watch this space for the popcorn munching blockbuster hit of the summer coming soon <laughs> uh, Michael Bay's Teamster Rebellion This is Labour 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 Days was presented by Daniel Randall Ed Mustel and Ellie Clark Our producer is Liam McNulty and additional research was provided by Holly Smith Our guest today has been Clive Bradley, the socialist activist and screenwriter. Find us on Twitter at labour underscore days, or you can also get us on Facebook at forward slash labour days podcast. Download us on iTunes.